What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Oftentimes, when I read a good book with children, they get the sense that that book came out fully formed in its most perfect form. It's hard for some readers to understand that a lot of work went into making a great story, and that one of the most significant parts of that work is editing and revising. In my work with kids, this part of the writing process seems to be the one where they struggle the most. That's not surprising because for a lot of us, it's hard to go back and look at your work with a critical eye for revisions. However, this is an essential part of the writing process and one we should take time to work at. So let's chat a little about some things I think it's important to remember when helping children develop their editing skills. First, it's important to remember that the process of editing and revision is the process by which we make a good piece of writing even better. So I find that it's important to communicate that we revise not because we've done something wrong, but because it can be better. It's also important to remember that not all pieces of writing need editing. We really want to make sure that the writing we edit is a piece that needs it. For example, an entry in our own personal journal would not be a good candidate for editing, but a short story we want to be able to share with friends and family is. After setting this groundwork, I found that the next step in helping children edit is to do what all good editors do, ask questions. Having worked with many excellent editors in my own writing, I've found that what good editors do is ask questions and let writers do their own problem solving. So when working with children, I find that this pattern is just the ticket. Asking good questions allows the writer to follow their own path, but gives them the direction they need. So asking questions like, is anything missing? Can you think of a different way to say that? Did you use enough action and sensory words to convey your message? Did you check for misspellings or other grammatical mistakes? These and other questions like them are perfect to help children think critically about their work. While the process may require slow and steady patience on our part and on our child's, in the end, we'll find a well-written piece has emerged. And here at Rachel's World, we know that even though it may be hard, editing and revising are important skills for all of us to master. Childhood memories can be so vivid. A visit to Grandma's house, fishing with a cousin during summer vacation. Maybe you even actually roasted chestnuts on an open fire. These experiences stay lodged in our minds our whole lives. Poet Margarita Engel knows this as well as anybody. She's written a delightful picture book about her childhood visits with relatives every summer in Havana. All the Way to Havana is the name of the book, and just to make sure the illustrator got things right, she sent him, an artist named Mike Carrado, to stay with her relatives in Cuba, where he saw not only the city of Havana, but the countryside too. Margarita Engel is the National Young People's Poet Laureate, and as a Cuban-American, is the first Latina to receive that honor. She's a trained agronomist and botanist, as well as a poet and novelist of award-winning books, including The Surrender Tree, 
The Lightning Dreamer, Enchanted Air, and Drum Dream Girl. Here's Rachel with Margarita Engel. We are on the phone today with Margarita. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I am extremely honored to speak with you today. You are one of my all-time favorite poets, and I am excited to introduce you to our listening audience if they aren't familiar with your works. And if they are, I'm glad to have this opportunity for them to get to know you a little better. You have a brand new book that's just come out that's called All the Way to Havana. Why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about the inspiration for this book? Well, it's a really different picture book for me because it's set in contemporary Cuba, and so many of my books have been historical. Thank you, by the way, for uh, those comments. I really appreciate it. This book, I feel, can be read in several different ways for various age groups, so I hope that it can be um, useful at different levels. I think that for the very young child, it's a fun read-aloud about a family road trip, Uh, The road trip is the inspiration for me, not the cars. I don't know anything about cars. The illustrator knows about cars. (laughs) Uh, For older kids, I hope that they'll see the ingenuity and perseverance of poor people everywhere who take pride in keeping their old possessions going simply because they can't afford to buy new ones. And when I say older, I think second and third grade is where teachers really start to teach that long word, perseverance. I've seen it written, you know, on the walls of second-grade classrooms, and um, it's such an important concept about never giving up. For adults, I hope that the book will be an introduction to the beauty of Cuba, one of the closest neighbors of the U.S., I hope it will be a reminder that neighbors should be friends and a plea for lifting the economic embargo and travel restrictions, forgiving old grudges, and working toward peace. And finally, for people who like uh, classic cars, in quotes, the illustrator Mike Corrado has turned all the way to Havana into a dream come true for them. But I want to be sure that Americans understand that in Cuba, Old American cars are not collectible, classic, or luxury cars. They're just proof of survival in a land of poverty. That is one of the things that I love about this book, is that it brings that aspect of Cuba to life in in a really beautiful way that helps us as Americans who may not understand all that has gone on in our relationship with Cuba over the years to get a really clearer picture of that. I know this book has a personal connection for you as well. Would you share with us how this book is so personal for you? Well, I spent childhood summers visiting relatives in the Cuban countryside and small town, my mother's hometown on the south central coast. And um, so when when we decided to do this book, the illustrator had not been to Cuba. I arranged for him to stay with my cousins in Havana and to hire a car and driver the actual car that appears in the book, and go to Trinidad so that then he uh, recorded with his artwork that trip in reverse, coming back from the countryside to the city from the point of view of the child in the story. And I just think he did a beautiful job and made it so authentic. For me, the illustrations of the countryside 
are the ones that are really close to my heart. I know a lot of Cubans living in the U.S. Uh, identify closely with the big city of Havana. Um, my experience as a child was much more on um, farms and small towns. Mike, in my opinion at this point, is an honorary Cuban because most illustrators would not put that kind of commitment in to going and staying and researching that thoroughly. I, I think it made all the difference for this book that it was very hands-on research in person. He actually in, uh, was inspired by particular individuals who he painted and certainly by the individual car. I think your personal connections and then the personal connections that the illustrations bring just make this such a passionate, wonderful book that has so much heart. And And I think that that's one of the things I love about poetry, too, that it allows us to kind of capture that emotion and love and heart. So as you think of people reading this book and connecting with it, what what kind of emotion do you hope that they'll feel or that you hope that they'll take away from the reading of this book and the looking at these wonderful pictures that have captured that beautiful countryside and these resilient, wonderful people? I hope they'll see the universal in it. And children in particular, I think, could identify whether it's a road trip or train trip or, you know, bus or however they get to visit relatives I hope that they'll see, you know, kind of that joy of a family reunion and going to see the new baby. And, um, you know, there's going to be food, which in Cuba is a really big deal to come up with that much food. Food has been rationed for over half a century. Uh, But I just hope they'll see the universal and realize that, oh, these people aren't that different from us. You know, we could be friends. And that takes me back to this, you know, idea of neighbors, um, you know, Canada, Mexico, and Cuba are the close neighbors here with the U.S., and yet one of those countries has been selected to be shunned for, you know, more than half a century, and and those relations are just beginning to be reestablished. They've re- recently stalled. But um, when I asked children in a classroom If you're angry at a family member, how long do you stay angry? They say two hours. And if they're really being tough, they say two weeks. And then I say, okay, would you ever be angry at somebody for more than 50 years? And what? (laughs) So, you know, it's hard for them to imagine that governments could behave that way. I think as a global world, and particularly for our children, the more that they can understand how other people live and how other people are connected in the world, it just helps us be better people. So was that something that you were thinking about as you set out to prepare and write this book? Were you trying to balance that kind of personal story with the political realities of what's going on with Cuba? Yeah, I don't think of it in terms of politics as much as history, but because this started a long time ago and has just kind of never ended, but um, lifting the embargo should be a bipartisan issue because many conservative farmers would be very happy to sell agricultural products to Cuba, and Cuba's very anxious to buy them, so that should be a bipartisan um, issue, but... It just hasn't happened. I 
always think about peace. That's just kind of one of my basic goals in writing is to communicate the need for peace. And the only possible peacemakers of the future are the people who are young now. That is an amazing way to look at it. And I really appreciate that you are one of those that is looking to raise a generation of children that can engage with all of these complexities with a perspective of peace and helping them to understand that. As we close up our conversation today, Margarita, could you tell us what you would hope uh, people would take from our conversation today? If if there's one takeaway that they could have, what, what would you want them to remember? Well, I, there's really this message about peace and, and neighbors being friends, but I also hope that they'll um, read the book just for fun. I think that's important, too, for, chil- for young children, that poetry, um, poetry makes me happy. And I used to try and think of complicated explanations for why I write in, in verse instead of prose, and there aren't any poetry. It's a simple explanation. Poetry makes me happy, and I hope it will make other people happy, too. I hope they'll have fun with the language and with reading this book out loud. Thank you so much. I will attest that I had tons of fun reading this book. And it is one of those books that you can just share and enjoy to have fun. But there's also some great things that you can connect with and talk about, too, that help our kids understand the great importance of peace and diversity um, among our global society. So thank you for writing things that are fun as well as thought-provoking. Thank you. Young People's Poet Laureate, Margarita Engel, talking about her newest picture book, All the Way to Havana, that chronicles summer visits to her mother's relatives in Cuba. Next, Rachel talks with librarian Mark Pullum. They discuss the importance of helping children find books they're actually going to stick with. How can we, as parents, teachers, librarians, guide them to books and reading material with subjects that are of interest to them? Mark is a librarian and puppeteer at the Orem, Utah Public Library. He uses these talents, along with storytelling and acting, every year at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival in Lehigh, Utah. Mark Pullum is also co-author of Dressing the Naked Hand, the world's greatest guide to making, staging, and performing with puppets. Here's Rachel and Mark. We're in studio with Mark today. Welcome, Mark. Ah, thank you for having me. You know, one of the things as a librarian and a teacher that we well know is there's great things we do to help engage children with reading and not to focus on the negative, but there are some things that we do as teachers and librarians that kind of negate the love of reading in students. And I think sometimes if we are just aware of those things, we can we can better be familiar with how to help our students kind of overcome these challenges. So I know you and I share a pet peeve about mm. one of those negative things that teachers do. Oh. So let's talk about that. Being a teacher myself, I, I feel as if I could address this. And many times students will come with a list in their hand And they really were forced to come to the library. And then I will ask them, well, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Well, I have to find a historical fiction. 
great. There's so many good historical fictions. What do you like reading? Well, it has to be about World War II. Well, there's some great books. Let's go find – and it has to be 150 pages. Well, here's a second grader, a third grader trying to find the impossible task, a 150-page book. Um, a lot of times I think teachers think that page number is an indication of how good a book is. And I then my next question is, well, there are all of these wonderful books I could show you. But let's look for thick books first. It's no longer about the content of the book. It's about what book fits that requirement. And then we'll try to find a good book under that circumstance. And sometimes publishers, as you know, don't have – you know, they have certain pages. And 150 for a second grader or a, even a first grader isn't – you know, it isn't normal. It isn't feasible. So that's a, really a bit pet peeve that uh, – a lot of times when teachers give that assignment, you have to, all of a sudden they have no voice in what they're reading and it becomes a burden. And I think a lot of kids are discouraged in reading when they no longer have a choice in what they get to read, but they have to read it. And I think that's with all of us. You know, If we have to do something, we sometimes dread it more than, oh, I get to do something and I can have a, a little input on what I'm going to read. So that is one of my peeves. Yes, and I would agree with you there, putting these unrealistic constraints on it, it, especially when there's other really great ways that we can do to not put those constraints on it. So in contrast to page numbers, what would you do to make the context that's needed for maybe an assignment, but yet give them the choice and other kinds of functional things that would be better to help students want to learn to read? Well, sometimes I will give them, give them a book that doesn't have the required page, but then I'll tell them, well, you can read that and this one. You could read two books plus this magazine that is devoted entirely to that subject. And they kind of give me that look, well, I don't know if my teacher is going to allow that. And I'll just say, well, try. And then if I have mom on, or dad on my side too, and they can say, yeah, that's, you know, that isn't right that a page number. I want them to read the best that's out there, not necessarily the longest. And so, and a lot of times you just have to make a compromise. And sometimes you can't. And so you give them the, you give them the best book you can find that fits that requirement. And another thing, books are like time machines. Kids want to time travel. Hey, read that biography of Bill Peet or Lincoln or, uh, you know, uh, Nellie Bly. I loved her biography. And sometimes when you can catch that fire that actually reading is going to take you someplace that you've never even thought of going. I had to help um, kind of a teenage person with, you know, they come, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or a patron by their cover. And I remember a mom coming with her daughter, which you could just see on her face, I don't want to read, mom, don't make me do this. You know, she had that goth going on, the black fingernail polish and the kind of the I'm bored of everything look. And so she needed a book. And, you know, that's a daunting task if you try to find a book for someone that instantly shoots daggers at you when you're saying, can I help you? And she's just going, ah. Oh. So I showed her some books 
And her mother says, well, she likes really depressing books, books that where the main character either is, is sick or dying or, and, you know, you, you usually want to have a happy book or at least a good ending. Well, there are some books where people have their trials and, and they get through them. And one of those books that is a go-to book for me that really made an impression was The Devil's Arithmetic by Jane Yolen. And the minute I pick the book up, inside I just – a turmoil uh, because I knew what she was going to experience. And I knew that a book – and see, I, I got kind of emotional when I was giving her a book and she probably looked at me and went, oh, is this for real? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Slap me over the face. But I knew what she was going to experience and I know that she was going to live that. Not just hear it from a lecture from the teacher, but she was going to go through the Holocaust. And so books do that. They can transport you. They can take you. She ended up taking that book and another book um, by Waylon, I think. It's about the homecoming. Anyway, it was a book about a young girl in India who had an arranged marriage and her husband dies. They knew he wasn't going to live. She was only a teenager and then she had that stigma of being classified in that class in India. Well, books can take us places where people can't and we see those movies in our own mind. We're the director of what we're going to see and glean from it. I think that's the problem I have with reading sometimes. I get too involved. As The f most fun I had teaching was right after lunch, I would read. And sometimes we would read 15, then a half hour would pass, 45 minutes would pass, and I would feel guilty. I thought, we should be doing something else. But the kids wouldn't allow me to go on. And of course, I kind of have to read all the characters and do all the – and that's not necessary. Parents, anyone that's reading to, to a child, you don't have to do the voices and you don't – but it is fun to do for me. But the – I think just hearing the words that someone has thought so hard about to write down and I really admire authors because the right word choice makes all the difference in the world. So those are some of the things. Yeah, well, and I know that you've had a chance to interact with a wide range of authors and and one of the things that I just love about that is they're just so authentic and they're mm. just they're just doing something that they love and putting it out there for the world to see. So in your interactions with these authors, how, how do you think that they perceive their craft and and what are they offering to the world? Well, I think great authors do what they do because they love it. I remember the first one of the authors, Gail Carson Levine, or Levine, I forget. She told me what it was. She had just written Ellen Enchanted, and it was one of her first novels. And she was excited, and she was a rookie, and she loved this experience. Since then, she's gone on to some great books. But every time I give that book to a child or see them read, you know, I say, now that was a great person who loves writing and loves what she does. Uh, other authors that are just um, – down to earth. I don't think they do it to get rich at first. They do it because they love to do it. And they love what their books – where their books can, can take kids. And that's the authors that we usually have here at our conferences. Mary Downing Hahn, she was just this down-to-earth lady that just happens to write these scary ghost stories. And kids love them. 
and she, you know, just gives him what she likes and then the kids do the rest. Yeah, and I think that's something that's so true about books and authors and this community that we build is the fact that we're just we're sharing something we love and mm. and there's something so so deep and fundamental about what we love and what we do. So you've mentioned a couple of authors, but right now are there a couple of books that you that oh. you just love? I know I know this is the I know I, the, I wrote the some down because I needed to <laughs> tell book you. Lovers. Yeah, tell I us. I just read a new book by Catherine Colville. Bruce Colville's wife. It's one of her first one. It's called Cottage in the Woods. And when I first started reading it, I thought, well, the the whole Three Bears thing caught me. And and then these bears that are talking, I thought, oh, I don't know. But as I read more, I fell in love with these bear characters. It was like Jane Eyre with bears. And she was a governess that came to teach the youngest bear whose name was Teddy. And I thought – and then there's this kind of mystery to it, this mystery person that you didn't know about. And it happened to be a little girl that was found in their house, and her name was Goldilocks. They had named her that. And then all of these other things add into the story, the enchantment of living with humans and bears. And, and I just fell in love with this book, and it was a thick book. I don't read a lot of thick books because, you know, that's a lot of time. But I did finish it and I just – it was one of those books you just go, ah, now I know about the old lady that lives in the shoe and how really rotten she was to all those kids that she had nothing to do with all these. And it was just a joy. And I think books take you to those places and you've got to just discover them. And I really like that one. I've just read that recently. I'm also reading a book by Matt de la Peña. He writes a teen – you know, he run the Newberry. But he has a sequel to a book I had read called The Living, which is The Hunted, which says, boy, this is a teen scary book. And I'm just normal, you know, working with the kids' books. But there's – and Brian Selznick's book, The Marvels, I'm reading right now. It's one book that I feel really good about because – I was to 300 pages and I hadn't read a word yet. And that's how his books are, you know, like Hugo and Cabaret and some of those. So I'm just enjoying my time with books. That is so wonderful to hear. I think that there's just so many things that can open up this this new world to us and and help us to see things in a different way. So as we wind down today, what what's just one thing that you think that our listening audience should remember about about our conversation today? What what is that one essence of this that you think is important to pull out? I, I think take time to read and make time to read. For years, I haven't had the time and I didn't take the time, but it's not going to happen magically. You've got to make time to read. I would agree. That's the one thing I tell people. They say, how do you read so much? And I say, well, I make the time. And it's amazing how much time, you know, if you carry a book with you or mm -hmm. something like that, you can pull out those snatches of moments to immerse yourself in, in this glorious world. Yeah. I went to the gym. Hey, great. I went to my book too, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's going to have to be part of our daily routine. I love that. I think the more we make it that, the better off we're going to be as a society and our children will be. Great way to end. Thanks so much, Mark. You're welcome. Librarian and storyteller Mark Pullum, discussing the importance of guiding children to books that cover subjects that actually speak to them and hold their interest. We finish up the show with William Shakespeare's Sonnet 130 that focuses on his not-so-perfect girlfriend, Classical 89 announcer Solomon Reynolds shares the sonnet with us. 
Sonnet 130 by William Shakespeare My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then, her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I've seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love is rare, as any she belied with false compare. William Shakespeare's 130th Sonnet, read by Classical 89 announcer Solomon Reynolds. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.